Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Bruce Connor is presented in both a major retrospective and a new book. First up, Gary Garrels. He's one of the co-curators of Bruce Connor, It's All True, a 250-object retrospective. Connor was a leader of the pioneering group of San Francisco-area artists that used assemblage, drawing, performance, film, photograms, and prints to address issues such as violence and faith, and in so doing found one of the ways out of abstract expressionism which had dominated American art since the war years. The exhibition is debuting at the Museum of Modern Art New York, where it is on view through October 2nd. It was organized by SF MoMA, where it will arrive this fall. The show is co-curated by Gerals, Rudolf Freeling, Laura Hopman, and Stuart Comer, with assistance from Rachel Fetterman. The exhibition's excellent catalog was published by SF MoMA in association with the University of California Press. Amazon offers it for 52 bucks, a $23 discount off the list price. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, historian Anastasia Aukiman discusses her new book, Welcome to Painterland, Bruce Connor and the Rat Bastard Protective Association. But first, Gary Garrels, after a break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2016, a, the, though, only. The third biennial of artists working throughout Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curator Ara Moshayeti and the Renaissance Society's Hamza Walker, Made in L.A. 2016 features the work of 26 artists. Occupying the entire Hammer Museum, the exhibition includes condensed monographic surveys, comprehensive displays of multi-year projects, the premiere of new bodies of work and newly commissioned works from emerging artists. Find details at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in L.A. 2016, a, the, though, only. On view June 12th through August 28th at the Hammer Museum. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Martin Wong, Human Instamatic, on view May 14th through August 7th. This widely acclaimed show, called A Complete View of One of Our Great Urban Visionaries by The New York Times, features more than 80 paintings from every stage of Wong's extraordinary career in all their formal inventive, gritty, and lyrical power. Originally presented at the Bronx Museum, the Wexner Center is the dazzling exhibition's first stop on a national tour. For more information on Human Instamatic, including additional events related to the exhibition, go to wexarts.org. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s, and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. And we're back. Gary Garrels, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. We're going to talk about Connor through his chronology and through a number of themes he explores in his work. But I wanted to start with a story that's in the catalog about uh, reveals something of Connor's mischievous puckishness. And it's a story that goes back to his days in Wichita when he was a bit of a prankster at at the local art museum. Do you remember that story? And and can you Maybe tell it for us. Yeah, I have to say it's a little bit vague in my memory at this point. But yeah, he did steal a album Penguin Brighter painting from the museum. This is, again, from the archives and from various interviews. There are many, many, many interviews with Bruce. He, he did wonderful interviews that are in the archives. But that uh, he and Michael McClure would go to the museum quite regularly, but it was almost always empty. But anyway, he stole a Pinkham Brighter painting and, and took it out. Of course, was caught. And gosh, I can't remember the how that all concluded. Sorry. Well, apparently he stole it often enough that there was in oh yeah mm-hmm. in McClure's telling a little old lady who sat at the door, <laughs> and and one time she just kind of looked at him and said, "Oh, Brucey dear, you've stolen the writer again. Go put it back." <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah. I I would say though that you know uh, it's clear from very early on that you know, even though Bruce was in Wichita, that there was 
uh, a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. They weren't hicks. They weren't naive. They they were keeping up with art at the time. And this is in the early 50s. Yeah. So let's start by getting let's start with with Connor's career as an artist by getting him to San Francisco. Uh, why does he pick there? He had visited New York after which time he went to University of Nebraska to do grad school and then went into New York, visited, had spent some time there. And I don't know, he felt it, it was an uncomfortable city for him. I think there was too much emphasis on uh, business and capitalism and felt that the Bay Area was a more open-minded place. There were, there were you know, there was a, definitely an interest there in spirituality and kind of personal conviction and experimentation, personal freedom. And he had friends there who had already arrived in San Francisco that, you know, he knew from Wichita. So he, he and Gene, Gene Connor now, his wife, got married and they immediately got on a plane, I think a week later, and moved to San Francisco. And I recall this was 1957. The first work in the show, Connor started it in 1954. He, he held on to it, tweaking it, adding things to it for seven years. It's kind. It's one of those kind of puckish, funny works for which he would he would become known. What what is it, and and why is it kind of mischievous? Well, it's a big, very large, collaged work. I would say it was a, a kind of a Dada-ish kind of work. Uh, it's very reminiscent in many ways of Kurt Schwitter's. And uh, he did it while he was again at the University of Nebraska. And then he, you know, he kept everything and he, it was with him in San Francisco. And he fin considered it finished in 1961. And it's the backside, which is covered with all kinds of images, clippings, and, and lots of girly imagery. And he considered that the, the backside. That was the side you weren't supposed to see, kind of, uh, you know, a, 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 a thumbing in the face of kind of, you know, puritanical America. Anyway, and that, that, that was, it's one of the big major collage works of his career. I was at the, actually a curator at the Walker Arts Center when that work was acquired. My colleague there, Peter Boswell, who was a friend of Bruce's, wrote his dissertation on Bruce when he was at Stanford and seemed to be one of the people who maintained a close relationship with Bruce over many, many years, brought that work to our attention. Yeah, the back has all of these pictures uh, from kind of soft, pornish, nudist magazines, dozens of them with a few stickers that say things like warning uh, and fragile. <laughs> so, so Connor, in addition to making these paintings with collages for magazines and whatnot, he begins in, in 1957 making some paintings that include collage elements, gold leaf, um, oil paint on, on masonite. They kind of seem to, to come out of nowhere. Where, what, 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 what gets Connor to these and what is he playing with in these? Well, he actually started those earlier. They're uh, from 54, 55, primarily, still while he was at the University of Nebraska. And uh, he was interested in uh, layering, excavation, kind of topographies. He was very interested in uh, symbolism. And they're, they have a lot of a kind of exquisite beauty, but also very encrusted surfaces. And there are also some of these that are very light-filled, very colorful, jewel-like, but there are also others that are black, dark. Uh, you know, they're like a, a brooding portal into uh, some dark, dark country. In some of them, he paints over gold leaf. Now, that's something that if one goes back, you know, in art history gold leaf is intended to accent the painting rather than be something that is kind of over which you paint. Is, is there a particular reason he's specifically choosing to paint over gold leaf? He, in general, all of his work, going back to these very early paintings, are built up in multiple layers and then revealing hidden you know, bits and pieces underneath. It's like opening little windows, which he picks up with the, you know, the assemblages that he's doing then immediately after these paintings where you can see partway in, you can see some bits and pieces of details, but you can't see the whole thing. Uh, depends on where you're standing, about what the light is. They remain very mysterious, in fact, shrouded. You know, you use nylon stockings quite consistently often, creating these multiple layers of te teasing you, teasing your eye. 
and not revealing the whole the whole thing to you. And so I would say the gold leaf is just one element. I mean, and there's a wonderful painting. It's actually in the San Francisco Museum of Mar Modern Art collection called Dark Painting that he made for his friend, the poet Michael McClure. And he knew that McClure liked to actually touch paintings. And he expected that McClure would touch that painting and keep peeling off bits and pieces of different surfaces so that it, the painting, the underlayers would reveal themselves over time. And you can see that painting, it's in the exhibition here. You can see the, the intimation that there are hidden secrets buried inside, underneath the skin of that painting. Lots of Catholic and Christian references there. We'll get to those in a minute. And we'll have an image of that, of that piece on, on manpodcast.com, of course. So Connor starts doing works that include collage and painted elements in, in the early to mid-50s. Concurrently, more or less concurrently, Robert Rauschenberg makes his first combine collection, which happens to be at SF MoMA, in 54-55. Do, do Connor and Rauschenberg have any awareness of each other, or are they just kind of working toward related ideas in their own communities, more or less simultaneously, separately? Well, I don't think Rauschenberg would have been aware of Connor. Connor, I think, would have been aware of Rauschenberg. But there was, in general at this time, a lot of interest in assemblage. And so in some ways, Rauschenberg is part of a much larger zeitgeist at, at this time. There was assemblage work going on. Uh, you know, I, I, we can go back to Rauschenberg being aware of Bury. In, in, in Italy. Italy. Yeah. So it's this idea of, of a kind of linear cause and effect, I think, is a kind of false art history. It's much more a kind of a ricochet of ideas between artists or also in response to the time. My colleague, Laura Hopman, who's one of the co-curators of this exhibition, has written an essay in the catalog going through the history and the kind of set of relationships between artists doing assemblage, both in America and Europe at this time. And, and it was also true in Northern and Southern California. So in the South, where was, you know, Walter Berman uh, and others. Wallace. Uh, yeah. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a, I, I do think it's zeitgeist. And, and Rauschenberg was certainly right at the cutting edge of that and right at the beginning of it. But I, again, it's, I don't see Connor as, you know, Rauschenberg was a causal effect artist on what, what Connor was doing. When I look at some of the 1959 assemblages, and there are more probably from that year in this show than any other, I see, even in JPEG or in, in book version, an extraordinary cascade of art history jokes. There is a Duchampian bicycle wheel made obsolete in part by being encased in nylon in Spider Lady. There's a new take on the picture plane in Spider Lady Nest, which is at Yale. We'll have images of both of those. Do you have any particular favorite little art historical in-jokes in these, these Connor assemblages? What's interesting to me, where one thing that's interesting is that how present Duchamp is. And he did a little in 1963, a little kind of direct homage for Duchamp. The Duchamp, I think it's called the Duchamp Traveling Box, which he actually had wanted to present to Duchamp in 1963. I think Duchamp was in uh, maybe at Brandeis and uh, giving a talk and uh, Connor wanted to present this work to him. So I think there are there are a lot of references back to Duchamp, and that continues, you know, well into the 60s. I have to say that is an area that I think could deserve its own focused exploration down the road, which I have to say I was not really that aware of as we started in on this project. That jumped out at me as I was reading the book, too. I, I was totally unaware that was there as much as it, was the, as it was there. Although Duchamp, you know, his first, of course, shows down in Pasadena. So there's, there's a California link. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, again, I don't, I have not, I don't recall if there's an actual documentation of that, but I can't imagine that Bruce was unaware of that Duchamp show at the Pasadena Museum of Art. And of course he later knew Walter Hopps pretty well. Yes. And Hopps admired his work. In fact, Connor had an exhibition, uh, at Ferris Gallery, and the only work that was sold was a work that Walter Hopps bought. Anyway, the, the, the color transparencies of which were later famously requested by Joseph Cornell, and Hopps made a set and made made an extra set and sent them off to him. As we go through here, I'm going to try to weave some some of the themes that run throughout Connor's work in, in into this sort of chronology we're doing here. One of those themes is Connor's concern with violence, war 
and the nuclear arms race. And these subjects are in his work for, for decades, and they fuel much of his work in the late 50s and 60s. Any idea where his interest and focus on those issues came from? Well, part of the reason that Connor moved to San Francisco was to try to avoid the U.S. military draft. And he felt if he remained in Kansas, it was very likely he would be taken into the service. And he was absolutely opposed to, uh, you know, kind of militaristic, aggressive national cultural policy, but military policy and so on. He, he, uh, he hated it. What can I say? He was a truly artistic soul. Anyway, he, part of the reason he moved to San Francisco was he felt that he would be much more likely to get, get off the draft. And he, there are, again, stories about him starving himself, uh, letting his hair grow ragged, his beard, so that he'd, and he'd taken some drugs so that when he showed up to, for his uh, interview, you know, he, could be, he would not be classified as suitable for military service. And back that was the case. And then he was, you know, all through the 50s was the heightening of the Cold War, you know, in the early 60s, the threat of, of, you know, nuclear holocaust, you know, we've got the Bay of Pigs. And then and in San Francisco in general, there was a strong pacifist community and, a, you know, an inc incredible disdain for this kind of military adventurism. I can talk more about that, but, you know, it's also part of the reason he left the United States to go to Mexico was terrified of, of the bomb being dropped. And so, yeah, and so getting out of the United States altogether and moving to Mexico was in part to, to – he felt that there was an Armageddon that was inevitable and coming soon. You know, reading the reading the catalog and seeing so many issues, images of the bomb and the mushroom cloud and decades worth of Connor's work got me thinking about how the question of, of the bomb and nuclear possibility is unusually present in the work of Californians of Connor's generation. I mean, that's there in Heineken and Berman, who we mentioned earlier, but even in kind of the ensuing generation or half generation behind Connor, Michael Snow or Chris Burden. It's in their work, too. Any, any guesses, any thoughts about why Californians are so engaged with that? Well, I think, again, for, certainly for Bruce, he was very interested as well in uh, Asian beliefs, Zen. I mean, that's been very prevalent in California. You know, Buddhism, it's a very different attitude toward existence, you know, non-aggression, personal enlightenment. I am I'm not a native Californian at all, so I'm an adopted citizen, or it's, I've adopted it. And I think a lot of people come to California because you feel like there is an alternative sense of, of that kind of possibility. I think, you know, being in touch with nature is ubiquitous, certainly in Northern California. You know, it's, it's impossible not to rock, walk out into a redwood grove and feel like you're somehow living in a spiritual world. And, you know, I think that's, you know, I mean, it's just, it's a, you know, it's a cliche, but, but, it, but it's true that, that, uh, and we certainly see this in the sixties, you know, uh, an alternative to, uh, this kind of a, aggressive militaristic adventurism and, and capitalism and consumerism, you know, the way we see this then whether that's the beats, you know, in, in, you know, let's say in North beach, in San Francisco or, you know, the hippies in the 60s and Haight-Ashbury in the Summer of Love in 67. There are many manifestations of that that take a cultural form, but a lot of it is also very personal. There aren't a lot of cultural figures in California or anywhere else for that matter who, who were kind of active in both of those generations, both the beat generation and the hippie generation, and Connor was. Yes. I mean, he, hate, he wouldn't be identified as such. He hated he hated the word beat and he hated the word hippie and he wouldn't certainly didn't want his didn't want his, didn't want his name or person or art to be attached to either one of those kind of labels he hated labels he hated you know like these kind of constrictive boxed in movements that get constructed by cultural commentators or later art historians you know he it, for him art was a very individual uh, endeavor so as we referenced a moment ago, in 1962, Connor leaves, actually both Connors, leave San Francisco for Mexico City. He left because he was worried about, about the bomb um, and, and, and violence. And he would continue to make work in Mexico City. First, how did being in Mexico City change, change the work? 
Well, I think the most immediate thing was Connor's work was made from salvaged materials he would find on the street. When he was living in San Francisco in the late 50s, it was an era of, quote, you know, urban renewal. And so a lot of the old Victorians were being torn down. You know, there was a lot of incredible material to be found on the streets or, you know, in secondhand stores and so on. And it was just incredibly materially, culturally rich, period. And he assumed that he would find that same kind of thing or find something comparable to it in Mexico. And it's quite the opposite. Mexico was very, very poor. And everyone used every scrap of anything that they could find or have. And so he found actually, in fact, there was a paucity of found materials. And so he did have to kind of switch. Uh, and he started using uh, foil, candy wrappers, a lot more uh, paper uh, that he could locate uh, inexpensively rather than, you know, three-dimensional assemblage materials. So that was a big, big, big change. And you see color enter into the work in a very, very striking way. And you see the influence as well of, I think, Catholic liturgy, iconography, uh, you, you know, the, the, the symbol of the bleeding heart and so on. Those kinds of Catholic symbols come into the work a lot more. Does Connor make any film work in, in, in Mexico City or did he have to leave that behind for a time when he left San Francisco? No, no. He shot a lot of the footage of what's, what became Looking for Mushrooms is shot in Mexico. So he was definitely filming. I don't think that he actually completed or, you know, anything that was, you know, from that. But but looking for mushrooms is, I, can't, I, I have to say, you know, the other thing about Bruce and his films is he would, you know, go through editing them many, many, many times in many different forms and various states of, of finish or, you know, uh, editing. Again, I'm certainly not an authority on the films. My colleague, Rudolf Freeling, who, who's our media curator, has really been primarily focused on those films. But he certainly shot footage in Mexico. Looking for Mushrooms is the film that Connor made after he met Timothy Leary in, in Mexico City. And, and to the dating question, <laughs> the long version of that piece dates is dated thus, uh, 1959-67-96. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he kept going back. How does Connor meet Larry in, in Mexico City? And at the risk of, of asking a, a sly question that I don't mean to be sly, why did they get along? What, what there worked? You know, there was a, a small circle of expatriates in Mexico City at the time. I think everybody would have been pretty aware of each other. And uh, Connor, I mean, part of the reason, again, that he and Gene moved to San Francisco in 57 was... Uh, and again, Michael McClure talks about this, that they were, you know, they were smoking pot and uh, ash. And and as he said, uh, McClure was that it was, you know, a portal into a different reality. Uh, the, the, I mean, this kind of idea of mind expansion and certainly meeting Leary, they would have been completely, in, uh, I would think, sympathetic to each other when they met. And they did go looking for psilocybin mushrooms together when they were there. Uh, they got along well enough that when the Connors decided to return to the United States, they they briefly stopped in Wichita and then went to Newton, Mass., where where Leary was running a kind of utopian commune of sorts, and then did, found that that didn't work for them and, and went on to Brookline. They were they were wanderers. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, so Connor had no money. They, they, he wasn't selling work when he was in Mexico. He, he was. I think it was surprised that it was so difficult, actually, to survive and live there and to have no money. They moved back to uh, Wichita, I think, stayed with a family because they really had no money at all. And, and yeah, and Leary invited them to come to, it was actually Newton, Massachusetts, where Richard Alpert, who was Leary's associate, had, was, had turned the old, his old family home into basically a commune. And, and, the, Con and the Connors did not find it a sympathetic environment. I and mean, they lived there a very short time and then moved to uh, on their own into Brookline. You know, one of the other things that happens to Connor's work in Mexico City is that it seems to take a sometimes less object-oriented, more conceptualist direction. He made contracts selling non-objects, for example, such as time or sleep. Was that something he was interested in or working on before Mexico City or the kind of the conditions and maybe even penury in Mexico City kind of team up to push him in that direction? I would say Bruce's work all the way through is, is deeply 
involved with ideas. I mean, yeah, certainly the physical making of things is also very important to him. And I would say that's all the way through too. I mean, the idea of, you know, of even the films are very physically handmade works. You know, he would edit them frame by frame by frame himself. So handmaking, whether it was the assemblages or drawing, and that's another thing that he began drawing. It goes right back to the very beginning of his career. We have, we have, uh, there are cartoon drawings that he did in the early 50s and then more, let's say more, let's say more mature, serious drawings starting in the mid 50s. But, you know, he was, he's an intellectual. He was interested in philosophy and literature and uh, ideas. And th that, that permeates his work all the way through. And there are some times where it becomes maybe less material so that maybe the idea becomes a little more front and forward. But it, I, I guess that for me, there, there it, it never, I, I wouldn't, parse the work out as an either or, but they're all, it's always about uh, a shifting sort of sense of, of presence or balance about which ones look, might seem a little bit more material or more idea driven. But even the most uh, uh, austere works are still, you really feel the, the, the intensity of the decision making in, in making an object. Some of Connor's conceptualist pieces have lots of that puckishness and mischievous that we talked about a little earlier. What what were the I am Bruce Connor and I am not Bruce Connor buttons and and what <laughs> <laughs> could you describe that project a bit? <laughs> yeah, well, he at one point discovered another Bruce Connor in the phone book and realized that there were more Bruce Connors in the world and then set about going through phone books looking for Bruce Connors and at one point decided to stage a convention of Bruce Connors. And with uh, the president would be Bruce Connor, the secretary would be Bruce Connor, the treasurer would be Bruce Connor. But I think also, and we're this, we get into this in the exhibition that the the question about or the about identity and about naming is again very fundamental to the to to, to Bruce. And the sense the sense of this the self is not a singular stable entity. And maybe this was a fairly early point for someone to assert that so strongly that, you know, the self was always in formation. The self was, you know, many faceted. There were different aspects of the self that come out at different times, that it was a fluid identity, not a set stuck, you know, identity. And so the, I think, again, the playfulness of I'm Bruce Connor, I'm not Bruce Connor, uh, and that, and he also gets into this, and you'll see this, where people can see this in the exhibition, the idea of, you know, of, of, of his fingerprints, and the idea of, uh, he was uh, considering a job at uh, San Jose State University, I believe it was, and to get that job, he had to submit his fingerprints. Uh, it was a state job, and he refused because he said his fingerprints were part of his identity, and he wasn't going to give those over free to a public agency. And then made a wonderful, fantastic uh, artwork dealing with that uh, whole episode. A series of prints also in which normally when it comes to printmaking, a thumbprint or fingerprint on the stone or on the plate that makes its way to the image is is death. And he made works that were nothing but the fingerprint. <laughs> right. That's all it is. It's one, one thumbprint, I believe. Yeah. And... Uh, no, and again, with, with printmaking, he was interested in printmaking and, and used it again in unorthodox ways sometimes. But, but so, again, it's the seriousness of it, but also that there is a uh, he, he recognizes the ridiculousness of, of so many situations in life and can sort of thumb his nose, if you will, or put his fingerprint on it. And the idea, again, of the body and the, the uh, and this is, again, I think you can see this in a lot of different artists works in the 60s about how the physicality of the body is an index. And, of course, that goes back to Eve Klein in the 50s and, and other artists afterwards. And we see people, all, you know, like we know David Hammond's doing his body prints in the 60s. So uh, it, it, he wasn't alone, just like with the idea of assemblage. You know, there were things in the air that he was deeply part of. I love how that in, in pretty much the exact same week, Betty Saar and David Hammonds both made body prints, didn't know about each other, met each other a couple months later in Chicago and discovered that they'd both done the same thing at about the same time. Sometimes it really is in the water. I'm speaking with Gary Garrels. We'll be right back after a break. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents... 
Frank Stella, A Retrospective, a comprehensive survey of one of the most important living American artists. This exhibition presents Frank Stella's career to date, showcasing his prolific output from the mid-1950s to the present through approximately 100 works, including paintings, reliefs, maquettes, sculptures, and drawings. This retrospective is curated by Michael Opping, chief curator of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in association with Adam Weinberg, Alice Pratt Brown director of the Whitney Museum of American Art. Frank Stella, a retrospective on view in Fort Worth through September 18th. Join J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in a new podcast, Art and Ideas. In the debut episodes, discover the history of porcelain with potter and author Edmund DeWall. Explore the depth of visual intelligence with art historian Yves Alambois on Ellsworth Kelly. Delve into the formative years of Los Angeles-based architect Frank Gehry. Unearth the ancient past with archaeologist Colin Renfrew. And examine the history of Black Mountain College with curator Helen Molesworth. Available on getty.edu slash podcasts or search for it in your favorite podcast player. After a major three-year expansion, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art returns as the largest art museum in the U.S. dedicated to modern and contemporary art. New exhibitions include works from the Doris and Donald Fisher collection, with dedicated galleries spanning the careers of Andy Warhol, Alexander Calder, Agnes Martin, Chuck Close, Gerhard Richter, and many more. Experience the new SF MoMA, where kids 18 and under always get in free. To book tickets and for more information, visit sfmoma.org. Now back to my conversation with Gary Garrels. Another one of Connor's kind of puckish projects slash artworks that deals with the body and will kind of get us into Catholicism is a 12-object uh, group of work called Touch, Do Not Touch. What, what was that? And yeah, what was that? <laughs> well, that actually goes back to this painting that I mentioned before called The Dark Painting from 1959 that he had made for his friend, the poet Michael McClure. And um, he put, uh, as I mentioned before, he... Michael would like to touch paintings and he and Connor made the painting so that there would be multiple layers and 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 so McClure would discover more painting as he if he touched it but McClure gave that painting uh gifted it to the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art fairly short time after he had been given it and I have to say I don't know the circumstances of exactly why he did that but he did uh, Connor had also added an edging a, a frame if you will of a kind of faux fur which I also like would be nice to touch. And it was exhibited at the museum and Connor came through, saw it on the wall and saw that it was the only work on view in the museum that had a sign next to it that said, do not touch. Uh, obviously because the painting was so inviting to touch. And he was outraged, demanded that the museum take the sign down. And of course they didn't, wouldn't. So he then proceeded to make this series of works called Touch, Do Not Touch. And there are actually 13 panels. And he collaborated, uh, blank on the fellow's name, but anyway. John Pearson. To, John, yes, to do, uh, to do a, a, type, a, a type face kind of thing that could be rubbed onto the canvas. So there are 12 canvases that say Do Not Touch, and they have no glazing, no, no covering, and then the 13th panel says touch, but it's covered with glass. And they are were hung uh, like, an, like a chapel. And so the one that says touch is at the, at the end with six on either side going down that, that aisle. Uh, which also gets into the issue of, of Bruce and his relationship to Christianity, to the Christ figure. And of course, the testing of, of whether Christ had actually reappeared after his death when he said, you know, no, I can't say it in Latin, but do not touch me. So, again, whether it's about a, a personal relationship with a friend like Michael McClure or about his uh, very tempestuous relationship with institutions and museums or about mortality and faith and the, the body versus the spirit. I mean, all these things get wrapped up all together. They're kind of like a a knot that's very tightly wound up. And you can start pulling the strings out and pulling it apart, but 
but they never finally un, uh, get undone. I was fairly stunned at how many Catholic references there were throughout Connor's oeuvre. Everything from crosses and and crucifixions to um, when when Connor moves back to San Francisco and runs for the board of supervisors, wink, wink. Under his qualifications for holding the office, he he includes this quotation from scripture. You wrote a whole catalog essay about Connor and Catholicism and the church. Well, no, I'm going to say it's not Catholicism, it's Protestantism. <laughs> ah, oh, well, do tell, do tell. tell uh, I'm interested in the distinction. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the Catholicism got overlaid when he was in Mexico, for sure. But he was grew up as a Protestant in uh, in Kansas, which is a very very strong center for a kind of fundamentalist Christianity and a Pentecostalism. I grew up in the Midwest also, and in a probably not so dissimilar environment. So maybe I'm a little more sensitized to it. And when he grew up as a kid, there were tent revivals that came through town, you know, in the summer where you know you could go in and be saved. In which he participated a little bit. Yes, he would, go, yeah. he would go in. He just was so delighted with the idea, with you know the kind of, I think I would say the absurdity of it, but but also the, the kind of these you know what acts what are acts of faith, and I think that's another just fundamental issue for Connor. I mean, it's a very his work. I would call it existentialism as well, and uh, but the idea of this of scripture is very important. The word of God. Uh, as it's been handed down to you know his disciples, and uh, whether that's true or literal or not, and and uh, yeah, Connor re- references biblical references quite often, but also he was very aware of Masonic rites, all kinds of occult. He was interested in the occult as well. So there again, there's there's Christianity, there is Catholicism, but there's also Protestant belief, which is that one finds God through one's own heart, not through an intermediary, that it has to be a direct experience. And that's, again, the, you know, the kind of saving of one through these, these, these you know, rituals and baptisms and so on. That's really interesting, because I, being an art history guy, see crosses and crucifixes, and I think Catholic religious imagery. But you're kind of suggesting that Connor was engaged with and being thoughtful about and responding to kind of early post-war evangelical Christianity. Oh, oh definitely. You know, there was a uh, one of his early exhibitions installations at the Batman Gallery in San Francisco. He created a, a, a coffin, transparent one, and he went into it and, and basically lived in it for three days and then came out, which is the time of Christ being put in the tomb before he arose. Connor, you know, it, in growing up in, in a you know, kind of small town. He was in Wichita, which is a city, but still the whole thing is pretty small townish. Evangelical Christian belief is almost impossible to get away from or or not to be somehow influenced by. And I do think it permeates his work in lots of ways. I I began to touch on it in the essay I wrote, but I still think there's a lot of stuff that could be dug out about it. Is there any relationship between Connor's explorations of faith and religion and his explorations of hallucinogens? Well, sure. Absolutely. I mean, we, the Pentecostals particularly, you talk about, you know, it's, it's like a re- revelation, the book of revelations. And again, Connor was very aware of the book of revelations, which is the Protestant uh, idea of the second, I mean, the belief in the, you know, the second coming of Christ. And when, you know, the, the, the saved and the damned will be separated, and and of course one wants to be with the saved. You know, one end up being with the damned. So hallucinogens are certainly an extension of that. I mean, the of of, of an out of body experience, and the, whether that's through, you know, you can see martyrs who go into the desert and you know starve themselves, so that, and they begin to have hallucinate hallucinations and direct relationships with the Godhead. And the same thing is, you know, you're trying to reach that same sort of state of ecstasy and being in touch with a kind of universal spirit through hallucinogens. Now, they're, they're, I think they're very, very closely related. Are the works in which Connor most euphemism alert directly addresses hallucinogens or is perhaps most impacted by hallucinogens, is that work the drawings? 
maybe he certainly did lots of drawings. I mean, especially again in the early and mid early mid sixties and the time of the film looking for mushrooms when he was doing psilocybin. Yeah, there are lots of mushroom drawings. But again, the he also did what we call these mandala drawings, which again goes back to Eastern religion. Again, how one finds spiritual unity, a truth, a being in the world. And again, I think that is a very fundamental point in all of Connor's work. Getting outside of the, uh, the confines of a daily mundane existence, but finding a contact with something that is larger than the single self, that is part of being with a larger sense of, of, of uh, engagement with uh, a, a universal spirit or a, you know, a world beyond the, the immediately tangible. There's a beautiful anecdote, or not anecdote, a story, you know, that Connor wrote about when he was 11 years old and a kind of out-of-body experience that we, uh, you know, it's a, it's a well-known story by now, but it's uh, also very much included in our, in our catalog. Where he was 11 and, and, and light comes into his bedroom and he kind of gets lost in it and sees himself as an old man and floats away a little bit. <laughs> No, and he, and and he recalls this experience, and he writes down. He writes it down, narrates it, and it's again, I think, a very telling experience. And it's used as a, almost when the Walker Art Center did their great survey show in 1999. That became the the kind of epigraph for the whole catalog. The other body of work that is probably relevant here, in addition to the ink blots, are the angels, the photograms that Connor makes or co-makes. Is there anything else or anything particular about the overlap of the inkblots and the angels that's worth focusing on considering? Well, the inkblots, I mean, so the, the, the angels are taking the hand out of the making of the work. They're, they're photograms, so it's a direct imprint of the body on a photographic treated negative. And you see the hands and the, the body, the outline of the body, and the hands are what change I think most dramatically in their relationship to the to the body and the service of the the work. So it's it's a again it's this touch do not touch dichotomy that we talked about in that earlier work. And with the drawings it's the it's the hand present in in the kind of most intensive way the putting down of the line and the way the line extends the mind onto the paper. So I think they're two sides of the same same kind of issue. Yeah, I was also thinking that angels, and, and again, I was thinking capital C, Catholic art again, you know, and, and you can kind of read into angels anything you want in Catholicism and Catholic art, just as you kind of can with ink blots in 20th century psychiatry. But but angels are important in Protestantism too. Just so, I mean, you know, Christianity uh, between Catholicism and Protestantism you know the 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 divide and you know there. Well, I can, we can get into that kind of theological issue, but but I would say angels were are also very very important within a kind of Protestant religions background as well. So it's I think he's coming at it probably more from that side. But you know, one of the things I didn't know before I read the catalog was that Connor and his work, those being kind of separate things, were intensely pl plugged into pop culture. Searching for Mushrooms was screened for both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And I think the Beatles even asked for five extra copies. Half a day... He got a, he got a fan letter from John Lennon. Yeah, I mean, how many people got that, right? And half a decade after that experience, Connor advised Dennis Hopper on how Hopper dressed and looked an easy writer. And then Hopper holds the lights for the Connor proto-music video, if you will, Breakaway. Connor paints a, a baby elephant for Peter Sellers' movie called The Party. And Connor did light, did, uh, was very involved in the light shows at the uh, Avalon Ballroom in 1967, the height of, uh, again, the Summer of Love in San Francisco and, the, and the, the, you know, rock light shows. So was he interested in engaging with pop culture or did pop culture just find him? I think Bruce was, certainly was interested in popular culture. But also, you know, he was interested in mysticism and the occult. He was interested in politics. He was, you know, he was a polymath. He was interested. He had deep interests in, you know, being alive, you know, and everything that means, whether it's politics or whether that's physical existence, the body, 
whether it's the mind of the, the imagination, the spirit. I mean, all of that is there. I mean, I have to say I'm really pleased with we struggled a long time on the title, but I think we find, I think we got a good one. It's all true. That's the subtitle of the, of the exhibition of the, yeah. of the exhibition. And I think that's it. Bruce is you can try to parse him out. You can try to, like, peel off one layer or another, but it's all tightly wound up together. And you can look at a different facet, a different side, but you can't disconnect them. In the late 1970s, San Francisco, like, you know, most other cities or other big cities, has a punk scene. And Connor, who's now in his mid-40s, 45, 46 years old, devotes a year to photographing it. If Connor was 25, I don't know that I would be as interested in this as, as I am that he's 45. Why, is, why, why does that hold interest for him? Why does that attract to him? It feels to me, it seemed to me, that Bruce was interested in experiences that took one out of the kind of ordinary realm of day-to-day mundane, banal life. He was interested in heightened experience, you know, acuteness of of one's sense of being alive. And whether that was both, you know, mental and physical and spiritual, that, you know, it's the whole thing. Again, it's all true. You know, punks were the next, you know, so Connor was certainly involved in the 50s with what we call the beats. And certainly in the 60s, he was involved in you know, people now call hippies, but he certainly didn't like that term. And in the late 70s, discovering that the punk movement, that these were all cultural movements that defied sort of middle class uh, banalities, people looking for extremes of experience, for heightened realities, for, and I would say also a social connection with, in a deep intense way with other people. These are all very, quote, communal activities. You know, they're groups. And and I think, so I think, you know, for, for Bruce, that, that seemed to me to be the, seems to me to be the, the connection there. Connor's production kind of tails off in the 1980s and in the early 1990s, not because he's sitting around and doing nothing, but because he's doing other things. What's, what's kind of the big project in those years? Well, the big project is drawing. But you know he had some he had some health issues, and so he was limited in in the amount of physical activity in the last couple decades of his life. And he always was drawing, uh, going back to the early and mid fifties. Drawing is one of the most one of the things that's most continuous through his entire career, taking many many different forms, and it became a primary activity in the last couple decades of his life, as well as making films. He made films again, probably. The work that first gained him attention is a movie, you know, an assemblage film from 19, which was first shown in 1958. And he continued making films all the way through to to the end and looking at, again, theme and variation and permutation of the films. And the inkblot drawings were uh, an infinite series of folded ink drawings. You know, like a snowflake, there, there are no two alike. And I think it's the same thing with the inkblots. Ink Finally, I want to go back to Connor's interest in things nuclear. In 1976, he makes a film called Crossroads of Bikini Atoll, nuclear explosions. In 1989, he makes a collage titled Bombhead of a uniform, apparently a uniform-wearing man whose head has been replaced by what looks like a mushroom cloud. Did you, in working on the show, find yourself wondering about or trying to figure out why he dipped into nuclear imagery when he did? I mean, 89 is kind of a, I don't know, not maybe head-scratching-ish time to, time to pick. From the 50s on, I mean, there was this terror of nuclear holocaust, Armageddon. You know, that's why he left the United States in 1962 to go to Mexico, because he was, thought it was imminent. Uh, and, of course, we had the, uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, 60, I think that's 62. You know, he, that, that never left that, you know, we're living in a nuclear age and that, you know, that's kind of hanging over our heads as a civilization that, I mean, we don't, we tend not to think about it so much now, but I, you know, I don't think it's gone away. Maybe if people feel hopefully that it's a little more under control, you know, it permeated his, his mind and imagination and, 
and it, you know it's a it is a recurrent theme well so i mean if i'm if i'm as as you know if an art historian is looking for a specific event in 1976 or 1989 you're suggesting that for connor there didn't need to be a specific event about that time it was just something that was so on his mind that it came out when it came out it's a preoccupation that he that that goes back to the 50s and continues i think very much toward the end into the end of his life you know i i i think of connor as a very again existential artist someone who's acutely aware of the the fragility of being in the world and the, the kind of thin tissue that separates civilization from its collapse and i think you know he lived in in a world of acute perceptions and an extraordinary sensitivity and i think that just vibrates for me in all of the work i mean i see that very much in the drawings but i think it's just it, it's there in everything that he does and you see that in the very last film easter morning you know this which is about spirituality and about yearning for connection and a sense of fragility of life you know i think he he's an artist who really lived on the edge of acute acute consciousness acute awareness and sense of vulnerability and fragility but but also defiant against that again and just i would say just an staggeringly creative brilliant kind of mind that was restless that never settled for kind of quick easy answers he was always questioning you know seeing this the intensity intensity of his imagination and creativity sustained from the early mid 50s right up you know through the last years of his life working both with lots and lots of drawing but but in the film works and constantly reconsidering remaking going back to pulling out from uh reworking revisiting you know, you see these threads through the through the work over decades. Gary Garrels, thanks so much. No, oh, thank you. Edgar Degas' A Strange New Beauty is now in its final weeks at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. The New York Times calls it thrillingly intimate and WNYC breathtaking. Don't miss this remarkable exhibition. See it before it closes on Sunday, July 24th. And summer at the museum means live music outdoors on summer Thursdays in the Sculpture Garden, where our inspiring works created in the 1960s are now on view and much more. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The National Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers. Opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Anastasia Aukeman, the author of Welcome to Painterland, Bruce Connor and the Rat Bastard Protective Association. It tells the story of Connor's San Francisco and how artists such as Joan Brown and Jay DeFeo created a community that responded to influences as disparate as abstract expressionism and the beats. Like the SF MoMA catalog, it was published by University of California Press. Anastasia Aukeman, welcome to the Modern Art Nets podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, let's start with the subtitle of the book, uh, Bruce Connor and the Rat Bastard Protective Association. What was the Rat Bastard Protective Association? The Rat Bastard Protective Association um, was an uh, idiosyncratic group of artist friends, artists and poet friends of Bruce Connor's. Um, he coined the term or the name when he first arrived in San Francisco in well, he showed up in San Francisco September 1, 1957, um, and we think he coined the term shortly after that, so late 57, early 58. 
he wanted to kind of solidify his inclusion in this group of artists who are living and working in San Francisco already. And he chose the name together with his childhood friend, Michael McClure, who was already in San Francisco, a poet. And McClure chose Rat Bastard. He was working at the Vic Tanny gym and his boss used that to describe a lot of people. He was always saying that rat bastard, that rat bastard. And uh, Bruce identified with uh, the trash collectors, the company, the trash collection company in San Francisco at that time was the Scavenger Protective Association. That was the name of the company. And um, so they just combined those two, the, uh, the slur and the Scavenger Protective Association. So Rat Bastard Protective Association. So Connor um, and the other uh, ad hoc members of the ad hoc association lived and hung out in San Francisco's Western Edition neighborhood, which you describe as a latter-day West Coast bateau lavoir. Um, why why did they go there, and why was that place important? Well, the rent was cheap, and the building uh, that they gravitated toward, uh, 2322 Fillmore, by the mid-50s, or 1956, when McClure moved there, was already occupied by a lot of artists. Your narrative starts not just with Connor, but with a man named Clay Spoon. Um, who is he, and what kind of investigations did, did he help kickstart? Clay Spoon was an artist who, um, in 1949, was invited to do an installation for San Francisco uh, Art Institute or California School of Fine Arts um, annual ball. He installed a lot of uh, little assemblage works that he had made, and he called the installation the Museum of Unknown and Little Known Objects for this for this annual ball at um, December 31st. It was so hugely popular; everyone was talking about it, writing about it, that the show was held over for a month and. Um, it, it caused a stir. And basically what he was able to do with that is show the artists a different way forward that, that they didn't have to necessarily follow in the footsteps of the uh, Bay area figurative painters um, that they could make assemblages that they could put together found objects and, and detritus and, and make, make art with make art with those things. So I guess one reason that what Spoon was doing was so well received by by Connor and and the other rat bastards was that they're in a neighborhood that was on the cusp of gentrifying, wasn't really gentrifying yet. And so they see what Spoon's doing and they realize they're surrounded by material. The neighborhood, uh, the Fillmore neighborhood was undergoing what James Baldwin sort of famously called the Negro removal and what the city of San Francisco called urban renewal. A lot of the Victorians were being <clears throat> either torn down or moved. The neighborhood since uh, World War II had been occupied predominantly by African-Americans who uh, were working in the Navy yards and had come to San Francisco during World War II. And so when Connor and McClure and DeFeo and Hedrick moved into the neighborhood in the mid-50s, late 50s, they were finding, you know, fragments of uh, plaster walls with Victorian wallpaper on it and uh, door frames and window frames and <clears throat> all kinds of things that were left out on the street for the trash collectors to come get the next morning. So what those artists describe doing is going out in the mornings before the trash collectors came, picking up the detritus and, um, and using it for their art making. It was both uh, inexpensive and a way to sort of call attention to to this history and evoke evoke the past, evoke these histories. You know, a couple of the rat bastards are are best known today, anyway, as painters. I'm thinking of say Jay DeFeo or, or Joan Brown. What was the back and forth like between them and Connor? Well, Jay DeFeo and Connor especially had a very close relationship. Connor was enormously supportive of Jay and of her work and she of him. Uh, if you go to the Bancroft or uh, to the Jay DeFeo Trust, um, you'll find quite a bit of correspondence between them, very playful postcards back and forth. 
uh, you owe me 50 cents and, you know, little sketches that they would send each other. In general, um, you know, part of part of what the Rat Bastard Protective Association offered and, and 2322 Fillmore Street offered was a support system, a community. And um, Connor was very much a part of that, that attitude of, of support and collaboration. And, and I think that's to a large degree how, how it functioned for many of them. The longest chapter in the book is about how the Rat Bastard artists um, influenced each other. Um, and what what they made, and there were a bunch of things in the chapter I had to read twice to make sure I was reading them right. So I'm going to ask you to tell a story or two. And one of them is about Jay DeFeo and how she displayed or offered Christmas presents and why that might have mattered um, or been of interest to Connor. Right. Well, she would hang things from the ceiling by strings, you know, little packages that she had wrapped up. <clears throat> Connor cites that as a uh, influence a number of times in a number of different places uh, that when he came to a holiday party at 2322 Fillmore and saw these wrapped packages hanging from the ceiling, he got very excited and, and, and says that, you know, he incorporated that into his work um, in the form of those um, often nylon wrapped sort of bulbous things that he has uh, sort of embedded in his assemblages or hanging from the frame of his works. So he cites both DeFeo's uh, ornaments and the burlap bags that, that would hang off the back of the Scavenger Protective Association trucks, um, which were also sort of these pendulous, bulbous bags, you know, very testicular too, which I'm sure he enjoyed uh, that, that association. So those two things influenced his wrapping and his hanging um, that you see in a lot of his assemblage works from that period. Joan Brown we know best as as a painter, but she also in this period is making sculptures of things that were uh, wrapped or bound or where where what what do you think Connor gets from her? I'm not sure if Connor got from her or she got from Connor. I think again, there's a <clears throat> there's a lot of shared ideas and um, and dialogue, and um, you know they were critiquing each other's work and riffing off of each other's work. But uh, <clears throat> but yeah, Joan Brown also was um, you know making these tightly wrapped birds, or um, she had a fur coat, a raccoon fur coat that she made uh, fur rat, uh, which is one of her more famous, you know, works from that period, Man on Horseback. You know, Brown says that she was also looking at Goya's Disasters of War series when she was making pieces like uh, Man on Horseback and Wrapped Bird. And certainly, you know, they're making these works in the same year, in the same years, uh, 58, 59. And I think they're just playing off of each other. Fur Rat, I think, probably references uh, The Rat Bastard, Connor said later that, you know, that he would have preferred that the work be called Rat Bastard instead of Funk or Beat. McClure also talked about trying to perpetuate Rat Bastard as a, as a descriptive for this work instead of Beat, trying to get, you know, get some traction on that idea. So Joan Brown, you know, may have been picking up on that when she made Fur Rat and uh, trying to get that idea going, which then, you know, Peter Seltz included for a rat in his funk show in 1967. Yeah, I think there's just, it's hard to tell where one begins and the other ends. I think there's just a lot of, a lot of great dialogue uh, in these years, which is partly what made the writing of this book sort of easy in a way, um, because I just started picking at this thread, this idea of community and um, collaboration and shared ideas and it just yielded so much uh, between more artists than I expected. Uh, Joan Brown and Jay DeFeo and Wally Hedrick and George Herms and Manuel Neary and Carlos Villa, and, uh, to a certain extent, Wallace Berman. You know, these are all people who Connor said were part of the Rat Bastard Protective Association um, and who attended the meetings and um, 
And there's just a lot of cross-pollination. Connor was so into the idea of the association that he developed a stamp and had the idea that artists would sign their works with the Rat Bastard Protective Association approved uh, stamp. One of the messages of your book and the catalog for the SF MoMA organized exhibition that's now at MoMA, for me, was how much these artists, Connor especially, were responding not to New York, and in Connor's case, for example, not to Rauschenberg, but really mostly to themselves and each other. I mean, they weren't hermetically sealed on on the San Francisco Peninsula, but but they were pretty much about what they were doing and and not what New York was doing. Did that strike you too as you worked on this? Yeah, yeah. Um, and their work certainly developed in ways that diverged from you know what became canonical modernism after World War II um, in their pursuit of, um, of assemblage and, uh, and, you know, turning away from expressionism. I think they kind of enjoyed the isolation, if, if I can say that. Um, they, were, they were aware of their isolation, um, but they were also aware of the importance of what they were doing. And, and in a way, they, they were afraid of fame, you know, interfering with that with that precious um, community that they had formed and, uh, and also um, interfering with their commitment to their work. So they were very conflicted about the consequences of fame. And so I, I think, yes, they were isolated, but they were also um, sort of in some ways deliberately keeping themselves apart. Last question. Is it important that women were completely integrated into the group? Uh, yeah, very important to me. Um, and I think to them, you know, they, the artists were working as equals. And, um, and I think this was pretty unusual for that time. And um, maybe even for today, um, you know, Joan Brown was probably the first in this group to achieve um, a measure of success across, you know, from coast to coast in the East Coast and West Coast. Jay DeFeo also um, received a lot of recognition. The women were, I think I talk about in my book, um, uh, Bruce Connor had a family show where he he and Jean Connor and even their son Robert uh, exhibited works in the gallery. Uh, Wallace Berman included pictures of uh, Shirley Berman uh, and his exhibition announcement cards. You know, there was, there was a real sense of... Um, of the community, including the families that we just don't see at, you know, the Ferris Gallery, for example, the LA Cool School, or on the East Coast. So yeah, there was a, there was, I think that was just part of being part of a community and emphasizing that idea of community um, was, well, if, you know, of course, it's going to include the women who are, who are living and working at the same time. Anastasia Alkeman, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, being on your show. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.